Matthew 19, starting verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Picture the scene. Jemima, she's five. Uh, She's perched excitedly on the foot of mummy and daddy's bed. And on her lap, the wrapping paper of the most enormous present glistens in the morning sunlight. The nod from her parents is given to open the overly generous gift. And in a matter of moments, the lovingly wrapped personalized paper is as if shredded onto the floor into a million tiny pieces. The glee of joy is felt through every wall of the house as the squeals follow. The present has been given and nothing given in return. The mummy prompts for thank you. What do you say? And a fleeting thank you is muttered. They're still working on training Jemima to say thank you nicely. Because the child unquestioningly receives. The child unquestioningly receives without a moment hesitation to consider if they need to give anything in return. Children are master receivers of gifts. Master receivers of gifts. I've never met one who doesn't just naturally take. And that's the picture of the child coming into the kingdom that Jesus wants to say, we all need to be like them. In fact, We all must be like them. Verse 14, to such children belongs the kingdom of heaven. And it sounds so simple, doesn't it? 
And yet it is so hard. It's so unlike our adult human nature to just receive, to do anything, to do nothing in return. Which is why by the end of the passage, we have those stunning words which stop us all in our tracks. Verse 26, with man, it, meaning entry into heaven, is impossible. So why have we got this mini scene with children being shooed away by the disciples up front in this week's passage? Uh, Last week, uh, we saw the exposure of old Israel through their tests on divorce. Uh, The problem? Their hard hearts. Now this week, the disciple thought that children should be kept away from Jesus like a bad smell. The disciples say, oh, Jesus, you don't want to be near anybody like that, do you? Who knows, says Jesus. Let them come. Let them receive. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. What a surprise to the disciples. And as a little teaser for the rest of this talk, it's not their only surprise that they get this week. Why such a sudden gear shift? Why are we talking about children? See, Matthew, he trailers this week's passage with these three verses to show us The only way into the kingdom, these little children ushered away by the disciples, they get it spot on, naturally. The reason for getting it so right isn't actually spelled out here. Do you notice that? Which does lead to some speculation, but it just isn't, as some would say, that they are innocent, that they're innocent. Jesus knows their little hearts are just like any other human heart, full of sin and rebellion, Frankly, whoever thinks that must have never met a child before. No, it is that they receive it, knowing full well that they can do nothing in return. Getting into Jesus' glorious kingdom has to be entirely received. We'll see by the time we, we come into our conclusion. These three enigmatic verses are utterly crucial for us to grasp Jesus' point, for children naturally get this right. So with that introduction in place, let's meet Richard. I don't actually know what he is called, but he is certainly rich, so Richard it's going to be for the day. One day, Richard, he meets Jesus. And what we need to realise is this. Richard is one of the good guys. He's one of the good guys. And that might be surprising considering last week. There we met Pharisees who were testing, aggressive, and rejecting Jesus. And this week, Richard is a good guy. We'll see why by the end, why that matters. But let's just see how good he is. He asked Jesus a really good question. He wants to be in heaven, verse 16. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, as a vicar, I wish people asked me this question more. It feels like such a rarely asked question. I mean, have any of your friends ever asked you such a straightforwardly brilliant question? It is so good. He cares about the most ultimate question imaginable, heaven. Tell me how I get in. Richard, like we said, he was rich as well. Verse 22 says, Richard had great possessions. Now, in their culture, they assumed that that meant Good. You were rich because God blessed you and liked you for being good. Whereas nowadays, we often think the other way around, don't we? That you're rich because you've climbed the greasy pole and you've sold your soul. But the clincher 
to how good rich is, has to be verse 20, doesn't it? Having listed a bunch of the Ten Commandments, Richard turns and says, all these I have kept. All kept? It's astonishing, really, isn't it? And there's no sense that he's lying or that he's even boasting. Even Jesus treats him in the next verse like he's being truthful. He has kept all these commands. Let's just think about the good things that he has done. Because I think in any society, religious or otherwise, everybody thinks that these commandments are good. This guy would be, a good, would be good in any setting, anywhere in the world. Richard is, a, Richard is a kind, careful, and generous person. Richard's kept the commandments. You could trust him with anything. Richard is good. In fact, one of the best that we could even ever imagine. Do you know anybody at all who could truthfully say, all these commandments I have kept with a straight face? Matthew puts Richard here to make us think, Richard is so good, he is certainly better than me. So how might we expect Jesus to deal with him, to deal with Richard? Maybe Jesus will tell him, you're so good that you're going to breeze into heaven. But he doesn't do that at all. In fact, he does the opposite. Jesus has set himself up so beautifully in the conversation. Before the commandments chat, he says, verse 17, Jesus prods Richard on what is good. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Jesus is clearly referring to God there, but Richard is too blind to see it. He misses the hint. And so he plays with Richard. Are you sure you've got goodness right? Can Can a man actually be truly good? If you would enter life, keep the commandments. You see, Richard thinks he's basically there. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? If you like, what's the top-up bonus feature that I need to add on? And as Jesus brings up the Ten Commandments, um, it doesn't take a Bible know-it-all or even, indeed, a mathematician to realize that Jesus is pretty selective at this point. Out of the Ten Commandments, Jesus lists five and a summary of the second half of the commandments. So has Jesus either forgotten some commands, or can he not count? No. Jesus is very deliberate. He deliberately misses out the first four commands, which are the most important commands. They come first for a reason. The first four commands are all to do with God and relating to him rightly. If you like, they're the vertical commands. One, have no other gods before me. Two, don't bow down to man-made things. Three, don't misuse God's name. Four, keep the Sabbath. But Jesus also skips the final command, which is to do with do not coveting, meaning looking and wanting others' stuff, likely something Richard is going to have struggled with, don't you think? So the difference in that 10th command to the five if you like, horizontal commands that Jesus does list, is that coveting, it's an internal desired thing. Coveting is a measurement of the heart, not a direct relationship with other humans. So why? Why does Jesus um, give this guy, Richard, these five specific horizontal commands, which all have to do with outwardly relating to other people? Do you see what's going on? Jesus is 
exposing Richard, showing him everything that he is lacking. You see, it would have been so obvious to Richard that Jesus skipped the first four commands and forgot the last. It would have forced Richard to ponder, I've done those five, what about the others? And so we land on verse 21. And this is a brilliant moment. It squashes Richard and our hopes. Jesus takes the focus off the five commands Richard has kept and focuses in on the first four commands. Jesus owns in on Richard's real problem. He asks him to go, sell all he had. That's worth realizing that it's not what Jesus asks all Christians to do. It's okay for a Christian to have money. Jesus had rich friends. Jesus never says you have to be poor to get into, into heaven. But Richard was specifically told to give everything away. Why? Because for Richard, his money, it was his God. In his case, he broke commandment number one. He worships money, not God. He couldn't give it up, which is proven by his reaction. He went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So this objectively good man, he looks so good, we'd all love him. But he actually, he isn't. He's kept all the commandments that we struggle to keep. I don't think I could answer so confidently like Richard did in verse 20, do you? But he worships his money, and that's his God. So he looks good, but he isn't. Now we need to be careful here. It would be easy for me to stand here with a big bucket like a charity collector and shake it and say, give the money, all your money, to the church. Uh, maybe that's what you'd expect the vicar to do, given half a chance. But can you see that that is nothing to do with what this is saying? This is not a money beat up. But he does say something about having lots of money that we mustn't miss, actually. And having money can be a huge obstacle to entering heaven. It's a major pull on us all, which might just take our eyes off eternity and give us tunnel vision so as to miss the kingdom of heaven. We'd be foolish if we missed such a warning. Friends, let's be really careful and warn each other regularly. Money can be such a dangerous idol it has tripped up many in the past. But the punch of this text doesn't lie actually in that warning, but in the astonishment of the disciples later on in the text. For the second time, the disciples are wrong. They are totally dumbfounded when Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, it's quite a ridiculous comparative illustration from Jesus, isn't it? It's deliberately over the top. And the answer is so obvious, as Lizzie so helped us see earlier. Camels are enormous. Real camels are actually bigger than two men in a camel costume. Needles are tiny. So tiny that even threading thread through it can take an age. Jesus' point is not subtle. It is impossible. Can you see then why the disciples are so awestruck by this ludicrous comparative illustration? Richard is their idea of the best of the best. And if Richard's not good enough, 
Then into verse 25, who then can be saved? If not him, then who? And Jesus' answer is quite disturbing. Verse 27, with man, this is impossible. The whole deal of being good enough, getting eternal life, being saved, as verse 25 puts it, it's all doomed. It's hopeless. You can't do it. Christina, you you can't do it. Don't even try. Uh, Nobody is good enough. The, the, The standard is perfection, and nobody, not even Richard, is good enough. In fact, Richard's question from the start was actually wrong. Did you spot it? Remember, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Emphasis on Richard doing something. What do we all do naturally as human adults? We self-justify and achieve on our own. Or indeed, worse, I think, we look around at others and say, well, I'm not as bad or as weird as some. I'm better than lots, so I'm probably fine. Jesus says, no. The standard is perfection which is impossible for everyone. With man, it is impossible. Bottom line is, we all have too a high view of ourselves. Now, if we left it there, and just imagine for a moment that Jesus didn't say another word in this verse, then you and I would have no legitimate complaints. We might be offended, we might be perplexed, We might even be aghast, but there'll be no complaints that we are rejected and out of God's kingdom. But it would be an entirely fair scenario, that situation. That is a hard pill to swallow for us all because it's direct, it's brutally honest, but it is the truth. You and I are not good enough for God and the kingdom of heaven. Not a single person deserves heaven. And Jesus would know. He rules it. But the absolute scandal, and I mean scandal, of the good news of Jesus is that Jesus didn't stop speaking halfway through verse 26. Wonderfully, Jesus said the rest of verse 26, but with God, all things are possible. So from every single human who has ever breathed, who is not good enough for Jesus, suddenly the entire world has a shot at entering the kingdom. Everyone, no matter how good or bad they have been, becomes valid candidates to enter into the kingdom of God. The terms are absolute to help drive the point home. Can you see why this is so scandalous? When we get this, the words, they're really simple to read. They are so hard and radical to grasp. No matter how good or how bad you are, Jesus says all things are possible with God. You could come in. All you have to do is receive. Remember the child. To them belong the kingdom 
of heaven. Anyone can come in, even, even old Israel, actually. If only they would put down their tests of Jesus and accept him like a child receiving a gift. And that's what Christina has done, isn't it? She trusts, uh, in her words, in the goodness of God and his never-ending love for us through all our flaws and sins. Christina trusts that with herself, entry is impossible. But anything is possible for God, namely doing it all for her. She's received like a child. Our prayer earlier was simply that she'd keep on being like the child. Now we need to pause for a moment and ask, um, why has Matthew, he decided to put this section about Richard here in the book? I mean, how does this scene um, add to our understanding of the section so far? Um, here is my thinking uh, where I've got to so far, but do come back and sharpen me um, and my thoughts afterwards. I'd love to hear what you think. Um, in this final section, before Matthew's finale, um, we see old Israel square up against Israel. Uh, sorry, we see old Israel square up against Jesus and lose. Uh, we saw God essentially divorce old Israel last week. So, wouldn't we expect more of the Pharisees testing this week? But that doesn't happen. Richard approaches Jesus gladly. Where's the testing gone? Plus, Richard, unlike the other Gospels, isn't even stressed as being a ruler of the Pharisees. Why such an omission? Surely that would make our theory stronger. I wonder if all this brilliantly actually puts something else very much in the hot seat other than Richard. Because what is the method of entry which Richard is holding on to? What would the Pharisees try to hide behind? What is the thing that they would hold dearest to their hearts? The law of Moses, surely. Epitomized in the Ten Commandments. They certainly wanted to hide behind Moses last week, didn't they? Why not again here? See, entry by keeping the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments. So, could it be that this episode, which so blatantly and uniquely holds up the law, is teaching us that even relative brilliant obedience to the law, which was given by God, is a dead end for everybody. This old Israel project is dead in the water now. Even their law has ceased to be the way in. Just look at Richard, the best law keeper. He's almost mythically perfect, yet he is still in the same boat as everyone else, out of the kingdom. And Jesus, he hinted at the requirement there. Did you see verse 21? Perfection. The law won't make us perfect. In fact, what it will just do is show up our lack of perfection. Uh, this then, I think, should reshape our view of how to enter the kingdom and the law itself. See, the law, it was never, ever a route in. Don't mishear me. The law's good. It just simply could never get us into heaven. 
And that means that when we think of the Ten Commandments, we should never think of them as ever being able to earn heaven, uh, earn heaven when they are kept. Because what happens when we don't keep them? Inevitably, when we don't keep them, our place in heaven is suddenly at great risk, isn't it? It never was, and it never will be the way into heaven. Uh, we need to realize the tool that the law is. It's not the doorway into heaven. That is Jesus alone. It's more like a mirror to expose our sin, show us what we are really like, and show us the need for Jesus. So as we think of old Israel in this section, we see God putting them in their rightful place and taking their most prized possession, which they might hide behind the law given to them by God and showing them that that, not even that, will get them off the hook. If you like, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Knowledge which exposes our sinfulness too. We must never confuse the law for anything else but an exposing tool. With man, this entry into the kingdom, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So as we come in to conclude, Jesus, he, he gives us these precious window into heaven. It's a beautiful picture, actually, designed to motivate and to compel us. For when we grasp the perfection of heaven, um, then I think we are more likely to go um, to let go of our sinful efforts and receive, like that little child, that free gift of grace. Look at verse 27, which launches this mini conclusion. Uh, Peter's statement, it's both oh so right and oh so wrong at the same time. Uh, right, because they have left everything, unlike Richard to follow Jesus. Wrong, because it's both smug, we did this, unlike Richard, as well as speaking as if God owes them. What do we get in return? As if God is any man's debtor? Jesus initially, so kindly, only picks up where Peter is right. The wrong element is dealt with pretty emphatically next week. So stay tuned for that. Here, though, Jesus simply says, yes, Peter, there are two rewards in the new world for you. Fix your eyes there, and you won't go wrong. The two rewards, uh, they're both so important. One, it speaks of unique authority. The Son of Man sat on his glorious throne, sat with, get this, his followers, also judging on their thrones. Notice the 12 judging old Israel, verse 28, which fits so very neatly with our section as a whole, as the old Israel are judged, and a new Israel of humble children replaces the old. So that's the first reward. The second reward speaks of recompense and eternal life. Uh, count up everything that you might have ever to leave for Jesus in this lifetime. And know the Lord God will give a hundredfold repayment. A hundredfold. It's so overly generous. It's almost mind-blowing, isn't it? So let's pause and ask some questions. When was the last time 
we thought about heaven for more than a moment. It's hard to think about heaven, isn't it? Very hard. When was the last time we thought about ruling on thrones in heaven? That feels very alien to us, doesn't it? But all believers will judge the whole world. And that should quickly humble us. When was the last time we pictured the sheer abundance and the perfection that God will lavish on us? We find it hard to count the cost of following Jesus, but what could we possibly lose that God himself couldn't replace a hundredfold in the next life? When we do have to lose something for Jesus' sake, we should happily count the cost, knowing that God will replace it a hundredfold. And we find it so hard, don't we, to fix our eyes on heaven because heaven is, by definition, unseen to us naturally. Hard to grasp, hard to fix as our daily goals and our daily lives. But it is the goal, according to Jesus. It is the end to which we are all heading. It's where this whole section of Matthew is going to be driving, chapters 24 and 25. Get this heavenly picture in our minds. And I think we'll be overwhelmed by a sense of privilege and by a sense of humility. I know I don't deserve anything like what God has promised for us. And yet it will be given to anybody if only they receive it like a child. Heaven's got nothing to do with clouds harps and floating it has everything to do with being with god in perfect abundance life with god forever and imagine imagine if we held that clearly in our minds every single day we should drink in that every day like it is our daily glass of water i mean imagine if if christina had heaven fixed, firmly in her sights for the rest of her life. It would be impossible for her to let money cloud her thinking or indeed anything to take her eyes off the prize of eternity with God, wouldn't it? So why don't we all try it? Why don't we try waking up each day and spending just 15 minutes daydreaming Daydreaming about heaven and just see what difference it makes to how you live. Because it will keep us going until that very last day when we'll be with him. Let's pray as we close. With man, entry into the kingdom is impossible. Father, we find that so hard to, to, to swallow, that pill. But it is reality, and thank you so much for telling it to us so straight and so directly. And we are so thankful that with you, all things are possible. Thank you so much that we can just receive the kingdom like a child. And we pray that in that sense, we would all be childlike for the rest of our lives. Help us never try to do Help us let you do it all for us. Thank you so much for that picture of Christina. 
doing that for us. And we pray that together we would all be doing the exact same thing, receiving like a child. And heaven, Heavenly Father, we, we're so sorry when we don't have heaven firmly fixed in our minds as, our, as the end goal. We pray that you would change that for us. Make it a reality. Help us have heavenly perspectives so that we can fix our gaze on that last day, on the great authority of the Lord Jesus and of the abundance of recompense that he will give to us. And we pray that you would dare to even give us this week and next and every week 15 minutes every day to daydream and to wonder what it would be like to be with you forever. And by your spirit, we pray that it would keep us, keep every one of us until that last day, we pray. Amen.